Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. This week's episode has a trigger warning for potentially upsetting subject matter. Check the show notes at www.bitchesoncomics.com to find out more. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm S.E. Flinor, and I ship Sonyarella, Red Sonia, and Vampirella. I'm Sarah Century, and... Yeah, I mean, I'm on board with that. Heck yeah. So we have a question from Krakoa Buzzkill, who has written many articles on Dawn of X and Powers of X. Given how frequently villains of the Silver Age come from marginalized groups, I always struggle with their portrayals as villains. Yes. <laughs> Relatable. Who are some of your favorite redeemed villains? And how do you respond to the idea that there are some characters that are irredeemable? I find there are some lines to draw between villains like Magneto and Sinister in terms of who can be redeemed and what can be forgiven. Yep. (laughs) Hard agree. Agree. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. So the X-Men, honestly, is a great place to look at so many examples of this because redemption is such a main part of it. And DC they really flub that storyline a lot. Like you have Green Lantern or something who becomes Parallax and who then becomes the Spectre. And he's, it's all about his guilt basically, but it doesn't really change the fact that he literally tried to commit genocide. (laughs) And then, you know, you have somebody like Phoenix and it's almost the same story, right? It turns out that Hal Jordan was possessed and it's the same with Gene. That's how we forgive Gene. But there's something about it having happened in the moment. We know in even the beginning that Gene is possessed right so there's just kind of a difference even in that realm because Hal Jordan we didn't find out until like 10 years later that he had been possessed by parallax right so it's just it's a complicated question it mostly applies to the x-men I think as we see in comics so you have a lot of villains from the early days Magneto I think is probably the one that pops out in my mind the most because you have somebody who lives through the holocaust right which is we find out new horrible things about the Holocaust every day. Like there's, it's happened years and years ago and there's no end to the atrocity just across the board. And of course it's, I mean, I believe that there's a few people online who I've seen talk about how it's extremely problematic to have one of the only, I mean, the most prominent Holocaust survivor in fiction, essentially being somebody who also does stuff like tries to reverse their polarity. And I agree with that. I think that that's extremely problematic. It would be great if we had survivors of genocide and atrocity that don't then automatically become these dark versions of themselves who have these moral event horizons all of the time because that isn't true. We don't hear the story of the Holocaust survivor that goes wild in the real world, you know, that like 
commits mass murder or something in their own right. Like that's not really something that we have ever, I mean, I've never heard that story. I've heard people struggling to get over horrible PTSD and things like that rather. So that is something to always think about when you're looking at characters like Magneto. Also his pain is used to justify a lot. So there's a lot of things that maybe you wouldn't forgive a person for, right? Like we forgive Magneto because he's a character we like and we want to see him again and again. So now he's a Messiah, basically, and he kind of has toyed with the Messiah image so often. And that is something that is always interesting because it means that in his own mind, he does believe that he is correct, right? Versus a character like Sabretooth, where Sabretooth is always convinced that he is wrong. <laughs> he knows that he is doing something really right. terrible. And he's also, you know... It changes as things that are alluded to and stuff like that. But from what I understand, Sabretooth is a rapist. And I think that in fiction as well as in reality, that is a line that almost anybody would have an issue <laughs> like forgiving, right? Like somebody for crossing. So what's the difference between them? Because right now in X-Men, Magneto's on the Quiet Council. Sabretooth is in a hell dimension suffering, yeah, right? For like, eternity, right? That they sentenced him to do. So you have this kind of bizarre dichotomy because it's like as many people as Sabretooth has killed, he hasn't threatened as many people as Magneto has because Magneto threatened the entire goddamn Earth. So <laughs> the X-Men are famous for sending just incredibly complicated and convoluted messages around this stuff. You know, it's <laughs> like you have characters who die and come back so often who like are removed from the other things that they did, like Gene, you know, you have that as a character who there's so many problems with Gene being like, oh, well, you know, she just like is a woman who can't control her power and all of that. And then it's just like you years later seeing Gene on the Quiet Council as well. And it's like, why is that? Because we had to make this entity, the Phoenix, which is something that possessed her, right? And impersonated her. Like it wasn't actually her. So you have these very bizarre outs for the X-Men. Like yeah. what is Magneto's, right? He's de-aged again and again. So now he's innocent. So even that <laughs> dichotomy between Magneto and Joseph, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I was even just thinking about Loki, you know, as a character and, and the horrible things Loki has done and, and how people continue to want to redeem Loki. And it, I feel like so divided about it. I'm like not that into redemption arcs for villains. I kind of like a villain who's like remorseless or is very clear about what they're doing and why they're doing it and doesn't have delusions of like, I'm doing the right thing. And then I like the idea of villains who are villains only because we as a system don't understand what the fuck they're doing. Like, for instance, Poison Ivy. We talk about her so much and we will talk about her until the day I die. After I die, Sarah's not allowed to talk about her anymore. That's like a rule. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she comes up so often in these conversations because this is a character who, whenever she first appears, almost no version of Poison Ivy's origin has her as anything than somebody who is reeling from extreme mental anguish at the beginning of her story. And almost no version of Ivy has her as anything other than somebody who has great reasons for what she's doing and is correct, you know, in a lot of ways. Now, of course, we question more and more how worthwhile it is to keep billionaires around. So <laughs> I just think that 
that's a character that the redemption is something that is written so prominently into the story that I think that there was always a disconnect watching Poison Ivy be this kind of one note villain. I think that everybody always wanted more from her because she had such an interesting platform, right? And it's kind of in some ways similar with Magneto because he has that sympathetic edge. Right. <laughs> Loki is almost completely unsympathetic. But you see again and again, Loki is really trying to do something, right? Even though it doesn't work and it's difficult for them. They're trying to do something. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it depends on what story, right? Like of Journey course. in the Mystery. And in there we get some interesting Loki stuff that I think does make it a little bit more complex. When I think about villains, I try to really not see them as bad guys. I try to see villains as antagonists because I think that stories don't operate without an antagonist. And we're talking about fiction. So to some degrees, like the redeemability is, you know, a function of fiction that we want to make characters that we, you know, I think about Spike and Buffy. He was written to be written off. So they made him really fucking terrible. (laughs) And then they're like, oh my God, audiences love him. We have to keep him around. He still does abhorrent things that I think are completely out of character or are, you know, more uh, the creator's issue than the characters, which is another complicated piece of what happens when we have villains in stories is like, to what degree are they dealing with like the issues and stereotypes and whatnot that exist in the creator? So I think about that and I'm like, well... Maybe we need to redefine what we mean by redemption. Like, do we want redeemed villains or do we want villains that we understand, empathize with and like who do things that are irredeemable? And that to me is a much more interesting conversation than trying to turn someone like Loki into someone who now has never killed anyone so that we can feel good about reading about them. And it's like, no, I, I actually am okay with Loki having to grapple with their legacy as a, as a person. And I think that that's true for me with all my villains like i like when a villain can't just be like oh shit i learned the truth now i'm a good guy <laughs> like i like when it's like oh shit i learned the truth and i'm still garbage or i still right. have so much work to do well that's like a very christian narrative right I exactly just for forgiveness and now it's fine exactly um, yeah that's not how life works obviously and there are these people who are like, quote unquote, heroes. Like I think of the Punisher, anti-hero. Yes, but hero nonetheless. Like that guy's murdered so many people. So and like, many. He doesn't have to have a redemption arc because we get him. Do you remember whenever it was people being like, Captain Marvel like stole this guy's motorcycle. Oh, so she's God. a villain. And oh, it's just like, God. you all read Wolverine. And Wolverine is under any description, a mass murderer. Like yes. he is a killer. He defines himself as being a killer often. Like he himself acknowledges <laughs> that he has killed hundreds, if not thousands of people. So the fact that you are mad because somebody stole a motorcycle, a motorcycle. from oh, a my jerk. Oh my God. To go save the universe, like what a bitch! I mean, just like that—that <laughs> that double standard is bonkers, mind blowing, right? Like, just just like, what bonkers. The fuck? Like you have no issue with the fact that all of these, all of these heroes, like I mean, Jesus Christ, look at Tony Stark's fucking borderline war crimes, like oh, again yeah. and again. Yeah. Like I mean, dear God. So like that was bizarre, and it does show that I mean, Captain Marvel, white woman, but still, you know, marginal gender so like you have just that kind of story where it's like all right (laughs) yeah 
you see how people aren't allowed to get away with it. And then some people are. And I mean, I think for somebody like Magneto, people so often are just like, well, that level of pain that he immediately is coming from allows us to sympathize with him. But the fact is, in real life, you would never forgive somebody who had done the things that Magneto's done. So all of that is kind of bonkers stuff. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Sabretooth, too. Yeah, for sure. But Sabretooth is a character. And if we talk about irredeemable villains, that there you go, you know, like, that's the <laughs> one, right? Like, he's the one that has no redemption arc in him. He has been in this system where they tried to redeem him multiple times, and he uses his powers of manipulation to get to teen girls. And that is a very specifically creepy and upsetting thing. Yeah. So the fact that he uses his manipulation tactics on vulnerable teen women be it in a seductive way or be it in a like because you know he has tabitha smith who he convinces that he is good and she brings him things and it's a arc for her to be like she's really trying to connect with her dad who was an abuser right so she's trying to forgive him through Sabretooth. Sabretooth can read her like a book like it's very obvious to him that he has these manipulations that he can do and then you have jubilee who is terrified of him and so that's a different manipulation he yeah. has manipulated her into being afraid all of the time while he is present in the mansion and of course none of this goes recognized by charles goddamned xavier <laughs> who moves him into the basement and doesn't have any care so you have that story i believe it's a uh, X-Men number 33, but it's that iconic cover where it has Gene versus Sabretooth on the very cover. And that story is so interesting. I've written about it, definitely. But I love that issue because Gene sees the effect that Sabretooth is having on people. In the beginning, she's like, sure, let's try to redeem people. Great, whatever, Xavier. I'm like busy. I'm about to get married, you know, has all of this, or I just got married. So she had all of this stuff that was going on um, outside of that. And then she sees the effect that Creed's presence is having. Whereas for her, Creed is nothing. Like she Mm -hmm. is so powerful that he can do nothing to her, but Jubilee can be hurt by him. So watching the way that the trauma of the women around her informs Jean's decision to confront him, as opposed to Xavier just being like, we have to redeem him. We have to. Like, that's what we're here for. That's the message. That's my point (laughs) of being, you know? Like, this is my fucking crusade. Like, everybody's all signed up. Like, we have to do it. Even though this person literally tries to kill Wolverine every year on his birthday (laughs) for the last, like, 100 years. All of those things. So I think whenever we look at a character like Sabretooth, He is irredeemable, and that's the point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's, like, the purpose of his character. We need a character who is completely irredeemable and who is great at manipulating the system in a way that makes us feel like we could redeem him, right? But just to add to that conversation, basically, like, the fact that they take Sabretooth, who is a killer— and who is unrepentant, and then they exit him, like, out. You know, they go, here's your horrible punishment forever, you know? And they, as a council, agree to do that. See, this is what happens, right? We get into these moral predicaments where it's like, well, I think that you are really crossing a line because you tried to redeem this guy. You're mad that it didn't work, and now you're dooming him to a hell dimension? Eternal torture is like, I'm not sure you have that jurisdiction. 
jurisdiction friends. Yeah, because they just gave themselves that exactly. jurisdiction, exactly. which is what's terrifying oh about my that God. scene. There's a lot of like discourse around this, right? Because some people are like, the X-Men are the villains, and then other people are like, wow, you're really fast to call a minority a villain. Um, <laughs> like In both of those, there's points to be made because you really are incorporating characters. Because as much as I say Sabretooth is absolutely an irredeemable villain, I have a huge problem excusing anything that Apocalypse has ever done, considering the fact that he is straight up a eugenicist. Like, that is something where it's like, you can't be redeemed, in my opinion, if you practice eugenics. Like, I don't, well, totally, I don't like totally. that. That is a broken, broken system. And the fact that his whole first, you know, 20 or 30 years of showing up was him just being like survival of the fittest. And there's a whole age of apocalypse where he gets what he wants and everybody dies, you know? So I think that I have a really hard time coinciding those things. <laughs> like, you know, they have uh, the young apocalypse, Evan Sabanor. <laughs> yeah. It helped us kind of relate to him a little bit more because this is, you know, they did the whole thing of like, would you kill baby Hitler? And it's like, well, Phantom X wouldn't kill baby Hitler. What he would do is like put him in like this weird fantasy world of positive vibes and see how it worked out. Right. And that's how we get Evan. So like they play around with this stuff all of the time. And I think that there's definitely a lot of commentary left unsaid on many of these subjects. For sure. But I, I think that it is an interesting playground, right? And that is kind of the purpose. You have these irredeemable villains and it's like, well, what does our society do with irredeemable people? Most mm-hmm. of the time it glorifies them. Mm-hmm. Like you have somebody like Ted Bundy who literally people still say that guy was hot after the atrocities that he committed, just awful, awful things that he did. And we don't remember the victims, right? We only exactly. remember Ted goddamn fucking Bundy, who is a piece of goddamn garbage. So the fact that we have this arena to work in, right? To say, well, that's not right. You know, <laughs> like what happens if we do this or this or this? And how do we deal with an irredeemable person, you know, in a better way than what we do? Yeah, and I and I think that trying to redeem a villain can be a slippery way of trying to get out of grappling with the repercussions of major acts of violence and minor acts of violence. Those are lines you can't uncross. If someone commits sexual violence against someone else, that can never be undone. It can't be. And people can learn to live with it and heal and move on. Those are all true things, but it can't be undone. If someone's life is taken, it can't be undone. If a whole country's lives are taken, can't be undone. If a whole you know minority group's lives are taken, it can't be undone. And those are important things for us to actually grapple with. That's what I find annoying about trying to redeem villains is there is no justification for those things. You cannot justify it. You can contextualize it. You can try to grapple with what it means philosophically about being alive. I think those are very worthwhile acts as creators to try to understand what it means if we have people who take someone else's life. Like, what do we do next, you know? And I think a lot about the fact that we try to have conversations about individuals without really contextualizing them within systems. And something that I learned, I studied abroad in the Netherlands one summer because my life has been stupidly blessed. And um, I was on a scholarship there and we went to the ICC, the International Criminal Court at The Hague, and they explained that what their job is, is to punish the most guilty for the worst crimes. I think it's a great way to think about villains because there are villains and antagonists who are more or less guilty of 
greater scale and lower scale crimes. That to me is a much more complex conversation than like redeemable, irredeemable, good, bad, justified, unjustified. Because the truth is anybody who's got the capacity to take a life is going to try and find a way to to justify it. But, you know, you have stuff like Xena. Xena is a mass murderer as well. Xena commits a lot of crimes and then she turns her life around and does everything she can to redeem that but without ever being able to a hundred percent yeah it's a defining feature of her you know you have a whole character in callisto and that's why callisto is such a good character is that (laughs) she literally is xena's crime she is the result she has all of the battle scars of having been a child whose family was unnecessarily taken from her. And of course there's things that Xena can say where it's just like, I mean, I was like this or that. And it's just like, it really doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because you did this thing that was so horrible. And Xena's like, I've done only good since then. And it's like, there's still people who have a right to want you dead, you know? And that is really interesting because we love Xena. Like I love Xena. I love her character. I love everything about her, but she like, could have killed my mom or something. <laughs> like, yeah, that's for something sure. That's just like, <laughs> you know, and so it's like we love to see that redemption arc, and like very seldom do they work. I think as well as the Xena arc did. Like Xena was a brilliant arc, and I think that it was really counteracted by Gabrielle's presence because Gabrielle goes into the situation as an innocent, and then goes through this entire whole trajectory of you know sometimes falling into darkness she she kills people you know and all of this stuff and kind of coming to accept violence as something that is necessary in her life because she is actively battling things that are violent therefore she has to engage in right, it. right so i think all of those things was Zena. it's just the most interesting so if somebody in real life burned down a few villages, I would say that person, we have to do something about that person, right? But in this, she turns herself around, and that's like the best case scenario. That's like what we would want. But then you would never still forgive that person if she had cost you that. And I think that that's something that gets addressed and dealt with in that series really, really well. Totally. I mean, I think that Xena's a great example of a character who desperately, like you were saying, tries to redeem herself, but like... You can't undo those things, you know? It never goes away through the entire series. And that's, and that's what I love. Is. I think that is beautiful. I think that makes me, yes, I root for Xena and I see why people want to kill her. And that is such a complex reaction to have to a character. I think it's so much more satisfying than like, vindication, you know? Yeah. Also, it's like, we don't talk about like what billionaires are doing that often we don't talk about how corporations are poisoning people we don't talk about those things but those atrocities because those are passive atrocities exactly so it's like they can do it without ever actually being held accountable because we have a system that was put into place to allow them to never be held accountable Mm. so yeah you know you have people who have caused mass goddamn extinction which is like how do you even rate that as a Uh crime like that is a crime that I barely can even wrap my goddamn head around, you know? Like, that's something that's so malicious and so awful and has such a wide-ranging effect on the world that it's like, I mean, yeah, compared to that, like, you have uh, somebody who kills a few people or something like that, and it's just like, these are moral skills that make you understand that ethics is a very complicated ah, subject. yes! <laughs> just, and that's why, once again, whenever we look at a character like Poison Ivy and people... So, so many mostly 
white men who are straight say stuff about Poison Ivy where they're like, well, she's an irredeemable villain because she committed murder. And it's like, but she murdered people that did passive annihilation of the environment. And that is something that, as I say, it's a crime that is so great that we don't even have a system of punishment for it. And we don't know how to hold those people accountable as we stand right now today because our entire system has supported that specific kind of criminal to exist. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> more questions than answers, quite frankly. But. <laughs> but this is like, oh, God, this is a great question. You know, the ethically complex, that's what we love. We love talking about this. And I love thinking about it as a, a writer and coming away being like, shit, I don't know, but now I got a story idea. <laughs> right, yeah. And, I mean, it really does, when we talk about a character like Sabretooth and incarceration, too, I just want to note that I, there's such a divorce of it just being this, like, hyper-aggressive white man who has committed mass murder as compared to what we actually see in jails, you know, so, and in prison is a very different population than that. You know, it's a bunch of fucking people who just get fucking picked up for weed and for some reason still Mm -hmm. haven't been released, you know, stuff like that. Prisons are full of people right now. And so I feel like Sabretooth is a very tentative (laughs) way of viewing stuff like incarceration and the death sentence and things like that because it's so removed from what our actual judicial system is in this real world that so much misunderstands it and so much takes it into a fantasy realm that it makes it very difficult to reconcile with just as somebody who also believes, I mean, like I'm an abolitionist, like I believe in prisons not existing, you know, one of the first uh, political texts I ever read was by Angela Davis. So this is definitely stuff I've been thinking about for a long time. And I wouldn't say that Sabretooth addresses any of that. So I (laughs) I do want to make very, very clear (laughs) that when we talk about him being the X-Men's example of incarceration, it just kind of drives home how much that the writers might not necessarily have a full understanding of what incarceration actually means in this country on a day-to-day basis. Or certainly not the experience or chops to grapple with it, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for this great question. This was super duper fun. I hope we left you wondering a lot of new things too. Remember that cool anthology we made in Pride Month? It's all a blur. (laughs) Fair enough, it is all a blur. But we did make an amazing anthology called Decoded Pride Anthology. We got 30 queer writers writing 30 queer stories. Horror, sci-fi, fantasy. You name it. We got comics. We got comedy. We got cool people. We got more cool people. It was amazing. Sharks. Geese. No penguins, but maybe next year. (laughs) Mycelium! It's a good time. It's a good time. We got dragons. We got more ghosts. I forgot about the dragons. Yeah, good dragons. A big fan of the dragons myself. And you know what? It's all so fucking queer. You can still get a PDF for $15. Come join us. Read these amazing stories. And hey, if you want to submit next year, great way to learn what we like. (laughs) Decodedpride.com. Yes, go to decodedpride.com slash buy dash a dash subscription (laughs) slash gov.uk. I love that we're trying to mislead people. Don't go to gov.uk. 
UK, but all of the rest of the that rest was of true. Actually, was true. I, I'm very impressed that you have the whole thing memorized. <laughs> I'm like, go to youtube.com slash F capital H Z 12. Oh my God. <laughs> You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. of the week is The Wilds, created by Vita Ayala and Emily Pearson. Written by Vita Ayala. Art by Emily Pearson. Colors on number one, two, three, and five by Marisa Louise. Colors on number four by Stella Dia. Letters by Jim Campbell. Yay! <laughs> I love this series. Wow, what a great series. What a great series. Brilliant. Jeez. This is, I believe it was the first thing that I read from Vita Ayala, who obviously is currently working on uh, Children of the Atom, doing Morbius series for Marvel, and also James Bond. James Bond, and also <laughs> uh, Nebula. Like, Vita's oh, God, doing and a lot Nebula. Of work right oh, my now. God. I love The Wilds. It has that layered storytelling that Ayala does so well. It has just, oh, my God, the concept is so made for comics. So I guess we should talk about that. (laughs) So it's a twist on a zombie infection, I think is the quickest way to talk about it. But the way that it manifests is that Earth retakes the bodies of the people. So people start blooming, like half of their face turns into beautiful flowers. And then as their body decays, they sort of become more and more part of the Earth. These are the abominations slash zombies. And then there is, you know, Collectives of people who live behind walled spaces, cities, compounds, whatever you want to call them. And then there are people who are called runners who run between those places and between the wreckage of society to, you know, scrap what we can reuse in these compounds. It is primarily about the runners, which are, I mean, 
of course, who else are you going to write your story about? And they're fantastic. I mean, they're they're just such interesting characters. Mm-hmm. The main two are Daisy and Heather. They're in a relationship and they're very cute. I love that I always like, I'm going to give, give the queers what they need. Sex scene in the first issue. Thank you. Beautiful sex scene. Yeah. And it's like an expression of their angst at the time, which is, I think, a kind of complicated and interesting way to have a sex scene, right? Is because you have them really working through an argument kind of (laughs) like through sex, which I think a lot of people who have been in long-term relationships would probably agree that sometimes that's how it works out. You know, that's part of what gets you through the argument, right? I'm so glad you said that because I think so often the way sex is used in, in so many stories, it's just like you can get more, forgive me, bang for your buck, you know, like if you're going to have them banging, get your banging on. So like there's so much emotion and so many pieces of the plot come into how people have sex in, in this story and in particular yeah. these two people. And I think that makes it feel very story driven. <laughs> it's literally like the first time that plot relevant sex scenes has been a thing. I think <laughs> like, we always joke about, Oh, well it's super relevant to the plot. You understand, you know, whenever you're doing like, I want to show this character's boobs for 10 minutes of the movie. Oh, well it's because like she had to, because like, you know, people always kind of have to find a way to do that. But this is the natural progression of all of these conversations is you're just like, these two obviously love each other. They're having a conflicting time. And this is a sex scene that just shows a different angle of how that is sometimes. And that sex can be a lot of different things. It's not just like, I love you so, so, so much, you know? Sometimes it's like just frustration. (laughs) Like you have a lot of different things that can be captured in that. And obviously that doesn't change how important it is, obviously, always to be respectful of people. They're super respectful of each other. But sometimes, you know, you're mad at your partner and it comes out in a lot of different ways. That's kind of part of why it's so interesting and why it stands out so much to me in this is that it's like, yeah, it's cool, like a great queer sex scene. But then it's also like they're totally mad at each other the whole time. And it's still really tender. Exactly. And I, I love everything you're saying, Sarah. And I think what's nice about it is it's such a tense moment and their sex allows them to relieve some of the tension, but not all of it. But they still, like you said, they're tender. They're the sex is beautifully wrought. You know, it looks gorgeous on the page. And yeah, they still have fucking issues. <laughs> it's it's great. It's just super yeah. great. And I think any of Ayala's work is going to explore body issues, body horror, who possesses a body. We see that with Nebula. Obviously with Xena and, and Gabrielle, you see that a little bit differently, but Morbius as well. Like these are all characters that have a lot of uh, commentary on body. I was trying to say body issues in a way that's not negative. Yeah, <laughs> like, not body um, issues. Commentary around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how do I say this in a way that... <laughs> But our language, you know, is socially so limited around it that I'm totally like, well, how do you say that it's kind of body positivity for zombies sometimes in the series? Yeah, and like, yeah. Because it's like they're accepting part of themselves. And I don't know. There's a lot to this series whenever it comes to Vita's relationship with the characters and the characters' relationships with their bodies. Absolutely. And there's like so many different storylines that are absolutely about embodied experiences and the particularities of these two people being people with uteruses 
in a world where people aren't having babies very much anymore. So what right. what does the society do? And I, I love post-apocalyptic ship that grapples with this. And I think very little of it does it well. Because so example. much of it goes right into, of course, it's just The Handmaid's Tale, you know, <laughs> or exactly. something like, of course, it's just graphic rape scenes forever. But then it's like, in this, it's not like that at all. It's like, there's still so, so much autonomy. The autonomy is different for everybody, but we're seeing zombie autonomy. Like we're seeing a lot of these characters have this very interesting relationship with autonomy, which is, you know, for a zombie story is literally groundbreaking. That's something that's huge. We have, what if the zombie has feelings kind of stories all of the time, but we don't have, what if zombies are in control of their bodies? Like we don't have those conversations. Or like, what if you have a right to succumb? Like you have a right. Right. In the story, some people choose to go out into the wilds and become abominations because they don't want to fight anymore. And usually those things I find are spoken about with malice or like embarrassment or shame around that decision. And it's presented Mm -hmm. here so much like, of course, some people would make that decision. Of course they would. And like, yeah, of course, of course. Right. But like the tone really gets that it's an experience people might Yeah, maybe it's not fun to spend your life in a compound where someone else controls everything you do. And the power corrupts people. People are corrupted by it. But what Mm -hmm. I also love is you expect things to go one way, especially in a scene where there's like a lot of conflict and there's groups of people having conflict. And you're like, oh, God, no, 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 I don't want that to happen. And because the work is so clever and I don't don't want to give it away, so I'm being a little bit general, but there's like a, a really powerful twist. And it says... Not all power is bad. People power is a good thing. Power that is shared laterally is a good thing. It's so intellectually deep and it's fun. It's beautiful. The art. Oh my God. Yeah. That's something where it's like, sometimes I'll be talking about story, story, story. And then I'm just like, oh my God. Right. And the art is, you know, the thing that guides your eye through this entire thing. And uh, yeah, you couldn't have found a better artist for this project. Even to present zombies not as disgusting, but as a source of life, just a different kind of life, Mm -hmm. is a a philosophical shift. Yeah. And to say, like, look how beautiful and still dangerous and still deadly and still oppositional to the people we're rooting for these zombie abominations are. I love it. I think it's one of the best twists on zombies I've ever read or seen or experienced. Yeah, I mean, good God, this goes in the best zombie story canon. Like, this is definitely something that, you know, if you like zombies, I'm going to put this on level with Pontypool, Night of the Living Dead. Like, I'm going to say that this is at least as good. People, a lot of comics that they would recommend, I think, for zombies, because there's tons of zombie comics, but this has got to be, like, one of the best, especially if you are a queer person or if you are a person who has, like, kind of deeper philosophical questions <laughs> about zombies and is it really okay to just bash them in the head? Those kind of questions that are dealt with in very heavy-handed ways, I think, in the movies, for the most part, it actually gets explored here. The way that it goes is kind of just this new way of viewing what any life could be, right? You talk about our life is over, you know, you become a zombie, your life is over. And it's like, but they're still moving. They're still doing things. So their life isn't over. It's just a different life. And that's kind of what we actually see a lot of in the wilds. I'm hopeful that when this airs, maybe we won't be on lockdown, but we are at the time of recording. And we are at the time of me reading it. 
And so there were some really scary pieces that really mirrored our current experience about quarantine, about the contagion and how it travels. Those things are a little creepy, but I found like kind of almost reassuring to read I'm like, oh, look. But what I think is really important, and I think it's also important to think about in our world post COVID-19, is that people who are trying to go back to what was are never going to be able to. And it always results in the taking of other people's rights and abilities. So there are people in this world who are like, we're trying to get back to the way things were. And like Daisy and Heather are like, there is no back to the way things were. <laughs> like, and it wasn't be good before, no matter what assholes. <laughs> yeah, that's something that always comes up in stories that I think is so, so interesting is whenever you have a character who's acknowledging that there are things that you go through that change you and then you aren't the same anymore. Because I think that a lot of narratives have a character who maybe has an arc Maybe you learn something, but they're intrinsically the same, right? Yeah, yeah. That's not how trauma works. If you've been traumatized, you know, that's something I always talk to people whenever I've had friends, obviously, who have lost people and things. And I'm always just like, you aren't going to be able to view things how things were, because in the way that things were, you had this person, you know, or like you had this or that. Once you go through things that change you fundamentally, such as losing a person that's very close to you or like, you know, just uh, in this situation, <laughs> you know, trying to escape death by zombie day after day, that means that you can never go back to the time when you weren't trying to escape zombie day by day. Like you can go to a new time, you can make a happy life outside of that or going forward or changing things or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you can never, ever go back to who you were. And that is how things are. It's not something that you can negotiate with. And when you try to negotiate with it, you will hurt yourself and you will hurt other people like a lot of the time because you're trying to force something that just doesn't even apply to your current situation into being the status quo. And that just doesn't make sense. You know, it's something that humans do that I think is not commented on in art enough. Absolutely. And I, I think that really just letting that be part of the main conflict of the story at a societal level, and then to see it echoed in the relationship between Daisy and Heather and the yeah. way that Daisy's like, Oh, you're from the desert. So you experience this. And Heather's like, uh, watch your fucking mouth. You don't know what my experience was like, and you don't know what it means to me now. Yeah. And that, I thought, was just like, it's such a great way of reflecting the main conflict through their interpersonal. And, you know, like, I love that we can trust Ayala and, and Pearson, and we can trust them to tell stories where we're not going to have to watch queer death over and over. And that feels mm -hmm. really good reading the story. I could relax and just enjoy the plot because I trusted the creators. It's tense because it's scary, but you know that you're not going to lose characters for shock value, right? Exactly, exactly. The other thing that I wanted to say about it that I think is, again, something we don't see a lot in these kinds of stories, but there's a, like a young child and the child is the one who helps everybody. And so I love that there's this, this way that the theoretical children are important to the people who are trying to go back to the way things were. But the real child is important to the people who are accepting reality and the new life they'll have to create for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the real child gets to be an agent, gets to, to influence the plot, gets to be a person, not the potential of a person, a person. And that right. is something we don't see in very much fiction. Yeah, and not written like a 35-year-old. The two ways that they go, right? You have a child who is talking as if they have a mortgage, you know, or 
you have a child who is just like completely a moppet, you know? So this is definitely the actual sweet spot, I think, between those things where you have a kid who's mature but doesn't act like they're going to just break out a pack of cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So if you like zombies, but you want to twist on them, if you're going to write about zombies, I absolutely consider the wilds required reading. Even if you don't like zombies, there's like so much in it and it's different enough from typical zombiedom that I think it's pretty interesting and, and not quite as gross as some of the zombie stuff is. (laughs) There's not like a lot of blood and like decaying bodies the way that, most zombie stuff does no they they focus more on the growth of it right which is i mean that's uh integral to the plot but also it makes for a really lovely comic totally lovely it's gorgeous it's well written queer characters who are awesome queer characters who are both people of color lots of people of color lots of shifting power dynamics and nothing is either or there's no binary ah i wonder why everything is a spectrum all the boundaries between things are permeable so the bad guys aren't just this person or those zombies everybody has capacity for evil inside of them everybody has capacity for good and people make decisions and it's like that's the best the best you can hope for in a story like this truly fantastic comics is the love of my life i love this podcast so much i will be still doing this podcast when i am dead i'll be doing it on a different frequency it will be kind of weird but you know you'll also be dead probably so you can join me there oh or you'll have a ouija board oh yeah ouija board you can tune in that way that one won't need to be funded because i won't be eating or living indoors this one this one i live indoors and i eat do you live indoors and eat oh god yeah you just reminded me (laughs) yeah oh turns out these walls aren't free and so we really want to keep making this podcast for forever the way that we're going to be able to continue doing that is to have your support there are a lot of ways you can support us you can follow us on instagram or twitter at at bitches on comics you can rate and review us but the strongest most helpful thing you can do is become a patron We have patrons at all levels, so you can join us at $2, you can join us at $20, you can join us at a million dollars. If you can join us at a million dollars, we're going to donate all of that money to help other people. But we appreciate that you're, you know, redistributing some of your wealth. So, you know what? Find us. We're at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. Not only can you support us, but when you do become a patron at any of those levels, you get cool perks. You get reviews of more comics. You get lists of more comics. You get playlists to go with comics. We're talking comics, pop culture, books, movies. We're doing it all. If somebody donates a million dollars, I want to keep 5,000. Okay, Sarah, you can keep 5,000. I need a car. That makes sense. Okay, thank you, everybody. We 
are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot. T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read Podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, The excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to Season 1, we are thrilled to announce the launch of Season 2. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make Season 2 even more memorable together.